Hello, friends. Welcome to Daily Bible Reading Podcast, where we are chronologically reading through the Bible, and every once in a while we take a listener request as the Spirit leads, and somebody asked that we go through the book of Revelation and do a more in-depth study. I'm here with my friend, Michael Mishkin, continuing in Revelation chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 12 today. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Thank you for doing this with me, my friend. I literally, it's its not mock humility. I literally could not do this without you, for sure. <laughs> so you Absolutely, man. So let's just jump right in. Verse, uh, <clears throat> chapter one, verse 12. Yeah, so I believe the last video we left off, uh, probably around verse 11, looking at how, you know, what was being spoken to John. Uh, so I figure I'll continue reading and we'll see what we can see. So in verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. <clears throat> and his head and his hair were white like the, the white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire and his feet were like burnished bronze when it's caused to glow in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his hand, he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, and before he goes into what he's saying, so let's look at what we're getting described here. Here he's seeing a man. And he's getting this description here that we all can see written. Now, one of the things that I always explain about the book of Revelation is that if you're going to try and understand anything from it, you need to know the prophets and the Torah, the first five books of Moses. You need to know the Old Testament. You need to know especially what the prophets were saying, because right here is a description that's written out in Daniel 10. When Daniel had the experience, it's, it's almost verbatim. It's very similar. And when you got that kind of similarity it can't be excused. It's it. You have to take into account, okay, something's related here. And this is a man, John, who's a Jew who does know scriptures. So he's familiar with that. So basically we're seeing that this revelation that is being expressed to him is not just out of the blue. It's not something new. It's something based off of what has been written and an understanding. So one of the things I believe to do is to go back and read Daniel and see what is being expressed there, because out of that can be helpful hints and gleanings to help us to see what is being expressed here. Mm. So it, it's really you're, you're talking about the intentionality of God, like none of this is just a coincidence, right? It's God. This is this was planned. God doesn't just do stuff willy nilly. This. This is part of a greater plan. And the, exactly. And that's a very important understanding for people to get. Nothing is done happenstance. Everything written has a reasoning and a purpose. You may not understand it, but it's there for a purpose. You know, there's so much that more that could have been written and wasn't. But this was put in there. So it's expressing certain truths and nothing can be overlooked. You know, everything must be thoroughly researched and to really understand the depths of God of where he's going, why he's doing this. That's the key that we're doing with understanding revelation. We're not trying to get some sort of prophecy of the future. Okay, this is going to happen. Let's wait for, oh, here comes a guy and this and that. We're trying to really understand what are you doing here, God? Where did you come from? Where are we going? What's the whole purpose? And right. in that, you also have expressions. You see where this man is standing. He's standing amidst the seven lampstands, which if careful observation, it's probably more like the, the menorah written in the Old Testament that was in the tabernacle in the temple, which was seven lampstands connected to one base. 
And in the middle of that lampstand, you know, is where he's standing. Now, many here listening may not understand, you know, why was there seven lights? You know, why is there seven days? Why, what is seven all about? There's a, there's a big understanding in seven. Um, there's an understanding that I believe in that I speak about to many people and I could teach about what I call the 7,000 year plan of God. That in each day of creation is expressing seven a, a thousand years of God's operating in his plan. So that's why even the first chapter of Genesis is loaded with in-depth understanding, if you know how to sort of decode that. Mm-hmm. So in the middle, you see him standing in the middle there, if you understand that theory, on the fourth day, which is the middle of the lampstand, is when Messiah comes. So there, this man who is described here with all that description from Daniel is standing in the middle of the lampstand, which is when Messiah came and brought the understanding of salvation, the opportunity for all to receive the way to salvation. And then he's going to return on the last day. That's his return. But it's important to see who he is. So that's what I glean out of that so far. Um, uh, again, they're, they're, that's why there's important factors to understand, to really research and get other background in many different, the history, the Jewish culture, and really seeing from the prophets. What let, let me just re- reflect that back to you, just just to make, because I, I think that's probably a new concept to most people who are hearing this for the very first time. So what, what you're suggesting is that perhaps there's this seven lampstands, which perhaps is like a menorah, which is um gen- many gentiles are not probably even going to know what a menorah is but if it if that's a like a, a candlestick that holds seven candles right that are um arrayed in in a line so you have you have a a base in the center and then there's one candle in the center and then three on either side and Correct. so when you look you can you can when you see a picture of a menorah um, actually, I'll, I'll just pull pull one up just for anybody who's watching the video, uh, which I don't even spell it right. But here's here's a picture of a menorah, and so if if Yeshua Jesus is is standing, he is he's the base, he's the center. Um, this number seven is is a picture of God's completion god's plan you're saying that there's there's a teaching there's an understanding that every year uh, or every day of the creation story represents a 1000 years of of human history that god ordained from the beginning of time and that uh, so like like adam and eve were on the first day potentially and then the millennial reign of Christ is the seventh day, the Sabbath, the, the, the resting period. And Jesus came in the middle of that week. Um, so if, if, the, if God's plan for the world was a 7,000 year plan, Jesus came in the middle of that 7,000 years. Is that fairly accurate? That's what I believe in that understanding, yes. Okay. To me, and and somebody who's read Grudem's Systematic Theology and all of the different books early on in my faith journey, trying to find the the truth and figure out eschatology and saying, "Eh, I'm not really an amillennialist because this passage definitely talks about the millennial reign of Christ. There's, I'm not really... Um, a pre-trib rapture person because that's really hogwash if you read your bible no offense Um, and I was poking holes in all of these different theories and I had literally given up like I guess the the a true understanding isn't there because whatever story or whatever idea somebody has of eschatology or a study of the end times traditionally everyone that I could find in a book anywhere didn't hold water like i mean there was some truth to it there were some suggestions but when you really dig into it and compare scripture to scripture none of them are bulletproof 
And when you started telling me many years ago about, about the, this 7,000 year theory, not that you invented that, um, but it, it's where I heard of it was, was from you. It really seems to make sense. It really seems to, to hold the most water as far as what I can see. Yeah, I mean, the Lord gave me that revelation early on in my walk. And when I started to really read the first chapter and carefully observe what's happening in each day versus what happened in each thousand years that have passed, there's a lot of correlation there. Um, you know, and, and then the simple correlation of in the middle is right around the time when Messiah came. Um, that's when the greater light and the lesser light are being made relevant, made expressed in understanding, and the stars in the blackness of the sky were made evident, and understanding the symbolism of each of those, and then seeing those applications, you know, you see like in Revelation 12, that the woman is clothed with the sun, and her, the, and the moon is under her feet, you know, she's got 12 stars around her head, it's the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes representing the people of God. The people of God were rep referenced as stars to Abraham. Look, look up as to, up at the stars there as your descendants. You know, when you start to really get anchored on the true perspective of God, which is a foundation, then you could start to properly interpret things. I mean, people can come up with so many ideas and write books about so many things. And, and you know, look, the best lies, and I'm not trying to say people are trying to lie to you, but they don't have a hundred percent lie. They base off of certain things that are written that are true, but then they go into left field because they're of improper interpretation because mm -hmm. information that they need to interpret it to keep straight is not there. So mm -hmm. they interpret it according to their own carnal perspective knowledge through assumption or whatever else they may use. And then people follow that because it's more than that, what they had. So it sounds profound. And now you have a grouping of people who are going the wrong way. So we're trying to bring it back where people are not getting, that's why I'm not here to throw fish at you and start giving, oh, this means this, this means that. I want to just sort of bring things out and say, hey, think about this, think about that, research this, look into that, start thinking and start understanding the bigger picture of God, like that puzzle we talked about. Yeah. We need that big picture. And that's what we're establishing, that big picture. So when you get a little piece puzzle, you get a better idea where it's supposed to go so that you can see the picture more clearly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we may have talked about this last time as well, but look at the fruit, right? Don't, don't take my word for it. Don't take Mike's word for it. Look, look at the fruit. Like what is the outcome? And by and large, most of, most of the Christians I know, myself included, like, we're not these super mature people who are really like Jesus was. And the reason for that, we also don't have the power that Jesus had. We don't have the power that, that the apostles had in the book of Acts walking around. Just, I mean, Peter's handkerchief or shadow was healing people. You know, Jesus was just walking and the crowd was around him and everybody around him was just being healed because of his presence, because of the presence of God through him. We don't have that today. And a big portion of why is our foundation is, is lacking. It's cracked, you know? And so we're not going to be able to level up and produce that kind of spiritual, powerful fruit without reassessing our cracked foundation. And so all we're trying to do through this is, like you said, share perspectives. And in addition to that, we each have, well, as a result of that, we, we each have the responsibility to look at our own foundation. Like, what are the foundational truths that we accept that are, that are the basis for our faith? And all of us have misunderstandings about what the scripture says. And we all need to take a step back and evaluate, are we, is it true what we believe? Is it, is it true? And, and that's the biggest driver of, of what we're doing here today. I agree. And that, that's what every person has to evaluate within themselves. If a person just likes to believe something a certain way, and when challenging information comes along, 
They just want to shoot it down. Well, that's the same exact thing as protecting an idol. This is what would happen in, in back in the day. An idol is symbolic from back then to now of an idea of the way you like something. And when something comes along to challenge it, you either break that idol and look to grow or you attack the attacker who tries to come after your, your idol, which is your way of wanting to see something. It's your way of settling on an idea. And God does not want anyone to settle that, okay, this is the way it is, or that's the way it is. When you have, you know, automatic ways of believing something, like God always does this, or God never does that, you've got an idol there. God is God. Does God does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. Our job is to engage him and learn from him and to grow from him. So all of this is to teach people how to really engage God, how to really learn from him, how to really re-examine things that you believe. And this is what we're doing here. We're using a very complicated book to start with. And I'm not going to go in, into so many details because a book like this would take a long time to really break into and study. But I'll show little nuggets here and there for observation. Yeah. So I'll just continue, I'll continue to the end here. And then we could just point out a few more nuggets as we go. Okay. So after he sees this man and gets this description, at about verse 17, he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. Write therefore the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, very rich in symbolism here, and even in, from his what he's saying. So here you got the this guy who's standing in the midst of this lampstands, and he says, write down the things which are. The things that you have, have seen, things which are, and the things soon came after this. So right there, you got context. So anyone reading, one of the things you read when you read any passage, especially in the Bible, is you want context. Context means it's setting the stage where everything else that's being expressed is coming from. So the context right here in the first chapter is being told to you that a lot of what's coming after is going to be things that have happened already. Things which are. And then things to come soon after this. So we have to be careful to interpret all things as like this is all future events. Um, you can deduce from what is written here that there are things written in here, a lot of it, that happened already during his time. So we have to keep that perspective if we want to really get better understanding. It does have projections to the end. There's certain things that we can look at that can only be towards the end, but there's certain things that have been interpreted that were thought to be the end that have already happened or are currently still happening. That's a big, important factor. Context is very key to pulling out true understanding of scripture. So there you got a, a contextual point. So here, this same man is also expressing, you know, I have the keys to death and Hades you know, and he's now, who's he addressing? Where's, there's another part of context. Mm -hmm. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the, the seven churches. He's puts it out. And, you know, we have the understanding of these churches, congregations, ecclesia. We want to really understand the difference. You know, we're not talking about necessarily buildings. It sounds like a physical aspect, but it does expand to as we read on, we'll see it goes beyond that. So we have to keep our minds open. And there's a diversity of these types of congregations that he's expressing. He expresses them as he's speaking to these seven stars, which are angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, be careful about taking a spiritual understanding to make it physical. Okay, he's talking to seven angels. We have to now put it in the big mix of understanding and see how this really comes out from its symbolism to its meaning. You know, 
you know, what does it mean? Okay, he's talking to this, okay, first church he talks to, it's an angel. I'm talking to this angel here, but yet I got a problem with all the people in the congregation. Well, why are you talking to the angel? Why not? The, you know, think practically in certain ways to start chewing on things because that's what helps to decode symbolism. You know, you want to not, the big problem that people have is that they try to get some literal and they try to have symbol and spiritual symbolism. The problem is it's mixed and that's what takes people into left field. You know, gotta, part of getting grounded is learning how to keep your apples apples. That's why it's very important to study a lot of the previous stuff first before you get to this book, understanding even what the apostles said, because they reflected on a lot of things that were happening at the time, you know, just, you know, what you were talking about, about how there's things that haven't worked, you know, there's no real fruit from a lot of stuff that we do. Well, I mean, you know, Peter and Paul and all of them spoke about meant much infiltration that was coming back then and has gone through all these years, you know, saying that we're going to have a form of godliness, but we're going to deny the power. You know, Paul said, that the kingdom of heaven is is not about persuasive words, but about a demonstration of the kingdom's power. When these guys really got people's attention, they moved in power and they were like, whoa. Today, we try and convince people, give them a track. Please, please come in. Come on. Oh, and you feel good. You pat yourself on the back because somebody said a prayer. You did nothing. Yeah. You basically wasted your time is really what happens. And, you know, well, and, and how how many people, how many people are, that, that that's a very important distinction and how many people are in the church quote unquote today based on an emotional decision that had absolutely nothing to do with the holy spirit how many people and if you look at the early church in the book of acts it says especially after god struck an ananias and sapphira ananias and sapphira <clears throat> God struck them, and it says people were afraid to join them, and yet God added to their number daily those who were being saved. People were afraid to join. People were like, no, I don't, I don't even, I don't, you know, I don't want to be part of that. God might strike me dead. And yet God was calling people. So it wasn't an emotional decision to join. And we flipped it on its head in our society today. Like you said, we're going to play this music. We're going to do an altar call. Altar calls didn't even exist in the church until the last 150, maybe 200 years. It wasn't done at all throughout history for 2,000 years of Christianity, nearly 1,800 years of Christianity. There, were, there was no such thing as an altar call. And now we have that. It's like the focal point in, in some churches, in a lot of churches. Like this is the high point. This is the re this is the culmination of everything that we're doing is to try to get people to walk down the aisle and repeat after me a prayer. How many people are we bringing in through emotion? Even if, if you go to John chapter one, where the the introductory verses into John's gospel, it says that people were born. He he gave he gave the ability. Jesus, the word gave the ability to become children of God, not by human decision, not by the will of the flesh, but by God. So yeah, we're down a rabbit trail, but it's, it's very important that, that we understand that, that we have that perspective. Absolutely. I mean, and that's, that's ultimately what we want to do here. You know, again, we're dealing with a very complicated book in doing it. And, you know, there's things we could still glean out, but again, the goal is for each individual to learn how to be grounded so that they can learn from God. John says, I have no need, you know, no need for anyone to teach you because you've been taught by the Lord. That's the goal of the kingdom of God. The goal of the cross is to die to your flesh and to be relating to God that he's teaching us. If we're not hearing from God, we've got nothing. You know, all of this is for the blessed are those who read of this and understand that have ear. Those are mature people. This book is written to the mature ones who have been through the fire and have known their God and grown and that they can then start seeing what's being expressed here. And they know that there's a lot of it's already been, mm -hmm. you know, so talking to a lot of people who might be new believers, this is really not going to be too helpful to you or it might be helpful to bring you into left field still. I mean, I could bring interpretations here. You know, let's go back and look at the guy that's written in Daniel and in here where 
his feet glow like bronze, like a furnace. Why say that? Think about these things. This everything you read, you got to think about. His voice was like many waters. You know, what does waters represent? Why is it many waters? You know, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Why not eight? Why not four? Why not two? Why seven? Why seven used all the time? You got to know. It's not just happenstance. Nothing is happenstance. So why is it seven? Well, like we said, I mean, at least from my understandings, you know, seven is a, it's a, an expression of completion. The word comes from Sheva, which is a aspect of completion or to fulfill. So, you know, God made the world in seven days with this idea of a, this is the full completion of his plan. Six days, you know, we are to work. Seven days, we are to rest. So part of his plan is to have resting. But on the six days, it's the toil of mankind struggling in this world all throughout. You know, we're just puffs of smoke in our individual lives. But all throughout, the next batch comes in and the next batch comes in with the opportunity to gain this knowledge of why we're really here for the projection to the eternal aspect. You know, if you're just dropped into this world and you don't care, well, then you're chopped meat. I hate to say it. You know, um, so seven was put by God as an idea of completion. So in many aspects, not just the days of the week, it uses the idea of seven as a, a completion factor. Now, using that understanding, we now have to put that into the puzzle and see how that works for the overall understanding. Again, this is teaching how to fish. I'm not here to give, give exact answers because I could be wrong on things. I'm just helping with some things that I might have gleaned, but the goal is that many people start to understand and grow like this and that together we can discuss and maybe more revelations could come for all of us. So, I mean, just even look on, it says, and then there's a sharp two-edged sword that came out of his mouth, you know, and a lot of understandings to help us to decode things comes from other scriptures, you know, like that's why I brought up Daniel and that's not the only place, there's other places written in the bible the sharp two-edged sword paul talks about the word of god is like a sharp two-edged sword cutting between bone and marrow and soul and spirit so it's again another uh, symbolic metaphor to express something in a, in a physical way that we understand a spiritual truth so we need to learn how to decode those things you know, why is it like a, a sharp sword? You got to understand what a sword is like, how sharp it would be and how, you know, the word of God is relative to that. You know, break down the idea of the word sword when it's written in Greek, what it's written in Hebrew, what that tells you there, because it gives you information doesn't mean it's going to always be helpful, but it's a part of your research. So breaking down the words can be helpful to bringing forth the understanding. But again, the word of God is likened to this two-edged sword, which is in this vision of this man is coming out of his mouth. A mouth is what we use to convey, communicate, understanding. Mm -hmm. Now he's doing it with the word of truth. The word of God is coming out of his mouth and it's unstoppable. The true word of God is unstoppable and will cut through anything. So you can see a lot of that. And his face was shining like the sun. So now you have another symbolic expression. You know, you see how the sun is shining. You know, it's 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 the dominant light in the sky versus at night. You've got the, the false light, the moon, which is not a real light. It's reflecting off the sun. It's a deceiving light. It doesn't really have light, but it rules the sky in the nighttime, which can possibly re reflect an idea of Satan ruling over the darkness. And in the darkness, you have the true lights that still glean and shine up there which are the people of god in the darkness that still shine the light while darkness is raining so that there you still have glimmers of light there. a lot of uh, symbolism that can be decoded there and you get these from all other scriptures like i brought up where it talks about stars in with revelation with um with uh abraham and even in the uh psalms you have different places that reflect on what stars are like and how they're like people the people of god so the, it's all over the, the word of God teaching you what these symbolic representations mean. It's just a matter of learning how to glean it 
and then learning how to properly apply it. So, yeah. So can we, can we just do like bullet points? I think, I think it would be helpful just to sum up what you're saying. Cause it's, it's a lot, especially for somebody who's never, so somebody for somebody who is newer to this these understandings, can we just like go like even if you start back and say, uh, let the verse fourteen, let's say where it's, it talks about the hairs of his head were white like white wool, what does that represent? Like snow. I mean, the whiteness always represents the purity, you know, the the holiness, you know. Okay. Linen, I believe, was white for the priests. They wore linen to represent the spirit. They had to take those garments off when they and they put on wool, which represents the carnal man. That's why you were not allowed to wear in the law of God with the people of Israel. You weren't allowed to wear garments mixed with linen and mm -hmm. wool because it represents don't mix the flesh and the spirit. Right. Very what about let's just try to do rapid fire um, through <laughs> through these flame. His eyes were like a flame of fire. I mean, it's like a furnace that burns through all, all the junk. And Seeing straight to the heart, the pure intentions. Right. He so, was I mean, for. And again, I mean, I know you want a bullet point, but you got to think of, well, what is a furnace, a flame of fire? What does that do? And that in really diving into that picture and really getting a practical sensing of something is what brings out the understanding. So that's why. Mm -hmm. We can do bullet points. It's like a furnace of fire that a furnace is there to smelt and remove the dross, the filth, mm -hmm. and it cuts to the truth of things in a sense. Yeah. His feet were like burnished bronze. I mean, again, burnished bronze is like glowing bronze. I mean, bronze is a very heavy, it's like a metal type that's very steadfast, very maybe. Yeah. Um, and again, I don't have every answer on every symbolic representation, but, you know, I get the idea. Right. Certainly. And, and, and again, like, I'm not asking anyone to take my word for it or your word for it. I know you're not either. I've heard you say many times, I mean, you're not trying to start Michiganism, right? This is just providing a perspective. And the encouragement is, is for everybody to go and, and take it to God study the scriptures yourself and maybe you'll have a different perspective and if you do great like send me a message like i would love to hear a different perspective um we don't claim to have it all figured out at all his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace like you said and his voice like the roar of many waters what does that mean to you mike so again i think about what is a roar a big loud like you know a roar is a big like almost like a trumpeting awareness sound to make everything around pay attention and many waters there's a lot of indication talking about a lot of waters represents all the peoples the different diversity of gentiles all you know all the peoples of the world so it was like his voice was like speaking through all the different peoples of the world in a loud voice you know trying to get a hold of everybody in the whole the whole world with a loud attention getting people's attention Mm -hmm. that's you know again that's something i sort of seem to be going in that direction yeah I, I i can see that and i also think like when you're standing next to a a large roaring waterfall it drowns everything else out like it's the only it's the only thing you can hear and mm -hmm. it doesn't stop it's like this constant and it's also a peaceful thing like it's not it's not like chaos. It's not like the children screaming, right? It's, it's, it's good stuff. So um, when I saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet like a dead man or as though dead. To me, I see that as like the flesh and our human weakness cannot stand in the presence of God. Right. But what do you, what do you see or I see the same thing when you see the fullness, like he's in the presence of the fullness of, you know, the expression of God. You got like, you know, Yeshua in this glorified form mm -hmm. there. And what he is in that presence is just useless and dead. It's like he's fallen, you know, like 
you know, what am I? It's almost like at, you know, when Yeshua was transfigured on the mountain and Moses and Elijah appeared as well and he's in his glorified form. And it's like rattling the cages of like Peter. He's like, he's afraid. He's like, uh, you know, you just, you know, different reaction when you're in there. But I mean, the bottom line is you just see the feebleness of what you are when you're in the presence of this, this ultimate, you know, fullness of God, you know, and then you see what he does next to sort of validate it where it's like, you know, you know, you fell at his feet as, as always dead, but he put his hand on me. So it's like, I bring you up. Like you, you see what you are. It's almost like Adam saw what he was after he sinned. He was naked and afraid because he was now not a part of God. So he's sort of now in the presence of God. They're seeing what he is, it's just feeble nothingness. But now God reaches out his hand to us to raise us up, to make us something. Mm -hmm. a lot of what i see in that it's good man that's good the the other thing that i love about looking at it with these perspectives is that you can you can take this truth and apply it throughout from genesis to revelation like if 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 you have an accurate understanding of what god is trying to portray I believe it will apply itself in in many different scenarios through, throughout the bible and in real life um so I, I appreciate you sharing that well that's correct that's that's the test because just because you get a revel you, you think you're getting a revelation it doesn't mean it's true you have to also now say all right well if this is true then it will it'll bring forth deeper understanding it'll be able to be applied all throughout the word of god and it'll have it'll continue to have substance and probably uncode other areas. That's what's key. If it's just something that's sort of still according to your mind, but it sounds good, it won't really work. It's just going to convolute. And then it's going to take a lot of assumptions in order for you to justify it to people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, let me share the screen again. You and you had mentioned Mike to, uh, you wanted to go to Daniel. Is that something you still want to do or should we continue on here? Well, we could read the part in Daniel so we could see the, the similarity if you'd okay. like. What, I mean, which, which portion of Daniel were you going to? I believe it was in Daniel 10. Um, let's see exactly where in Daniel 10 it was. It's toward the beginning. Uh, Yeah, I mean, he starts talking about how he didn't eat any food and all of that. And then I think it's around verse six or verse five. He starts seeing this man dressed in linen. Do you want to read that part? I can't hear you. Sorry. I'll just read it from the ESV. So Daniel 10, beginning in verse five, and this is Daniel speaking. I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. Yeah. And then it does go on, and he fall, Daniel, just like John, falls at his face, and then the hand comes out and lifts him up. Right. You know, puts him on his knees. So, again, a lot of similarities there. So, if nobody knows anything, just to see that kind of similarity should say, all right, whatever is being trying to be told here at this part of Revelation has some sort of connection here. This is not a coincidence. Mm -hmm. So again, this is now laying the foundation of proper study. Mm -hmm. So that's that's something that people need to have an observation for when they are studying. Right. So if we're going to interpret a passage or a set of words or even one or two specific words one way 
in one book. We need to do it the same way, potentially, in another book, right? I mean, it's it's using the same tools, the same interpretation throughout. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, in, in general, yeah. There, I mean, there are always exceptions. There can always be exceptions. Right. I mean, the key about it is, is understanding when you're understanding the big picture, it doesn't become as complicated. Um, it's like, you know, how you talk about it and, you know, there's debates like, you know, the Calvinism versus Armenianism or the different types of belief systems that people are millennialism. The reason why there's debates is because people are debating on like the, the bottom level, you know, you know, my doctrine's better than yours. No, my doctrine's real. My do and everyone's just throwing back and forth, you know, like rocks, the scriptures to back up their way, as opposed to Yeshua, you know, did anybody ever wonder why they could never catch Yeshua? They had the Pharisees come, the scribes came, whatever, because it wasn't some belief system he memorized. And now you could come with an edge that you didn't think about. And he's like, oh, 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 oops, you got me. He right. understood the big picture. When you understand the big picture, you're rising above. You're like an eagle all the way in the sky looking down from God's perspective. So it's like someone thinks they're going to get you on this little technical point. And it's like you see the whole thing. It's like, no, you don't see the forest from the trees. Let me explain to you what's really going on. Like yeah. when the Sadducees, I believe it was, or the scribes brought up to them, you know, a man had his, his, his a wife and died and then went on. And they're thinking they're going to get him. Which, which, which wife? Which one is she going to be the, the wife of? And he's like, isn't it because you don't understand the scriptures is what he says. He says in heaven, there's no, there is no, you know, marriage. And he goes and he overshoots them, basically shoots them down because you don't get it. You're debating mm -hmm. on this level. And mm -hmm. it's all the way up here, the real right. understanding. So that's what okay. God is trying to do is raise us up to this level so that we can look down and really understand and be like, ah, oh, I get it now. Yeah. Absolutely. Love that analogy, and and it, but it, but it it fits. That that's that's a perfect example. So, if if we're supposed to have, if we're if we're going to be raised up to like looking down from above, the way an eagle soaring a mile off of the surface, and yet still has clear enough eyesight to see a mouse on the ground, but is able to see the entire big picture. Read Isaiah 40, 31. Is it twenty eight through thirty one? That that passage in Isaiah that that is so often quoted. Think of it from that perspective that God is raising us up, giving us wings as eagles to, to, to have that grander perspective. And, so, and that's a perfect example of what we're talking about. If you have the proper understanding, it, it applies throughout the, the scripture. And there's, there's always going to be, um, there's always going to be uh, exceptions to, to every rule, but just generally speaking, that, that's what we're talking about. Right. And the general symbolism there is like now it's bringing a more of a definition of understanding of what wings are. Why do wings, you know, what is wings about? What's mm -hmm. the point? You know, there are certain characters that are defined with wings, spiritual beings. They're not actually from the term in Hebrew, angels. The word in Hebrew is malach or in Greek, angelos. They're the, they're the cooperative, like they're the two related words from Hebrew to Greek. None of them, from Malach to Angelos, none of them are described with wings. None. But the ones that are described in wings from the Old Testament are Keru, Kruvim, which, you know, we call them cherub, cherubim. And there's another character that you see in Isaiah 6, a seraph, seraphim. It has six wings, one covering its eyes, one covering its feet, and one's flying, saying, holy, holy, holy to the Lord. You know, I know people have gone on to all this description and you have books that, that give you the hierarchy of angels and through a whole, through a very vague amount of information. I would, I really would love to see where they get this from. Um, but, you know, just the seraphim, you've got to keep into account that seraphim comes from the word seraph, which means a fiery serpent. <laughs> and that's what was biting all the people in the desert when, uh, and then they, Moses had to lift up the staff. So, before you think you got an interpretation, you're gonna to have to re relate it to a seraph, which the base is from, you know, uh, this whirlwind of fire, this this heavy fire, you know, seraphim. Yeah, to my shame, Mike, I have I have stood in a church behind the pulpit and preached sermons and and taught people mistakenly 
that there were two types of angels mentioned in the Bible, cherub, cherubim and seraphim. And based on some book that I read or some teaching that I heard, that wasn't even, it's not even scriptural. You know, I mean, I wish, I mean, maybe God will have me go back to some of those churches someday and, and, and apologize to those people. I mean, it was, it was years and years ago and probably none of the same people are even there, but it's just an example. Like we, we're all on this journey. We all have at times a misunderstanding that we have to take, take back. And, and I would say if I'm believing absolutely everything that I believe today, I still believe in five years, it's probably because I haven't grown anymore. Like I need to be evaluating everything that I believe on a constant basis to make sure that I'm not holding on to these idols or the teachings of men. Because I would preach a sermon, for instance, with that example about angels not really knowing the truth, actually giving false information. And if somebody asked me a question that went beyond my understanding, I was not able to answer them. And, you know, and, and that will tell you too, like if you're studying the scriptures and you're not learning, it's probably because you have that cracked foundation that we were, that we referenced. You, you can't, you can't build a skyscraper on a, on a cracked foundation and we all in some ways our foundations are cracked and we need to be reevaluating constantly and i think that's part of what paul was talking about when he at least twice in his letters were saying test yourself examine yourself to make sure that you're still in the faith like it's an ongoing process right i agree absolutely this is this is the goal of the kingdom of god you know Life is not about your career. Life is not about your family. Life is not about what you think you can do or having finances. People believing this stuff, you're in for a rude awakening. And Yeshua said many parables against these types of people. You got to be a wake-up call. There's a reason why everyone dies. And it's actually very practical. It's next, next, next. It's just this, this world is a testing ground. Do you want to find God or not? Next. You want to find God or not next goes. Well, and, right. And, and the ability to be built in him, right? Because if we are going to be reigning with him in the future, in the millennial kingdom, he calls us co-heirs with Christ, co-laborers. If we're going to be working alongside, we need to develop our own personalities. And I'll never forget one of our conversations early on, you, you helped me understand. I mean, this was maybe 10 years ago or, or so you asked this, this was, this question revolutionized my faith in some ways. What can you take with you when you die? And I was, my, my response was nothing. Like we can't take anything. Ah, but you can, you take your character. You can take the, the 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 inner qualities of who you are. We have our memories that are coming with us. We have our character. And so every day it's a choice. Are, are we choosing God? Is it going to be God's way or our way? And whenever we choose God over ourselves, I believe we grow a little bit. And whenever we choose faith, whatever God is calling us to do over fear, we grow a little bit. And so as long as we're here, we're given the opportunity day by day to mature, to become more like him. And the more like him we can become, the better off we're going to be. Certainly in this life, not saying it's going to be easy, insert Job, right? But in the next life, we're going to certainly be much better off because when we're not in a sinful environment, when we're not being tempted and tested and refined like fire, we're not going to be growing anymore either. Absolutely. You know, like you said, basically what you're describing is the whole intention of what the cross in our lives is. It's denying ourselves, denying our way and devoting ourselves to God. It's the process of the temple worship. You know, it's the start of recognizing you're wrong, coming to God to give the flesh over, which was an animal then. But now Yeshua brought the other side, whereas now as you do it, 
you get transformed because you can rise up in the spirit man, get more matured in the understanding of God, be built in his character. That is being built now and does transcend into eternity forever if you are letting him build you now. So all these things that you described, this is absolutely correct. You know, I heard someone say, you know, what does the kingdom of God cost? It doesn't cost anything. It's free. No, that's not true. The kingdom of God costs you everything. It costs you you. You have got to give your flesh up to beget the kingdom of God. You've got to go so that he can grow in you. And Paul said that, you know, yeah. you know, I, Paul wanted to leave himself aside so that Christ may grow in him. So this is the goal. This is what, this is what the meaning of life is. This is what it's about. It's you growing into the, the image of God back to what Adam lost is what Yeshua brought to us, the potential. But it all depends on you to do it every day. So you must be endeavoring and seeking God, learning how to hear his voice. Otherwise, it's a waste. Yeah, yeah. It's a waste. Unless we engage him on his terms, it, it's a waste. Mm -hmm. We're all going to stand before him. We're all going to face the same, the, the, the same conversation with him at the end of, at the end of our at the end of time, at the end of our lives, we're all going to face judgment. And it's, it's going to be what you do with, with what you were given. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's a good conversation, Mike. Uh, that, that, that's Revelation 1. Certainly, we could um, go down lots more rabbit trails and, and talk much more detail specifically. Um, but again, it's, it's hard to do that over, over a podcast format. Um, if anybody's interested in having a, a live Bible study by Zoom and, and going just even verse by verse through Revelation, Mike has said that he'd be open to doing that. Um, we're not, again, we're not trying to create a following for ourselves or, or create Mishkinism or anything like that. We just want to encourage people to engage with the word of God and to grow. That's, that's the only reason we're doing this. And there's nothing else I would rather do in all, in all honesty. Or we could go back to basics. We don't have to study Revelation. Maybe we could go back to Matthew and start looking at the basis of where Yeshua was speaking about. And let's start breaking that apart because it's not the simple stuff. That's actually there's so much depth in the, the, those things that he said that, you know, will really bring so much light out that probably would enhance so many people if we started there, I would think. But, are, you know, are you talking about the Beatitudes, like Matthew 5? Beatitudes are profound. Yes, yeah, yeah, they are. They I are. mean, that, but that alone. I mean, but there's so many other things. Again, Yeshua was so deep what he said, and it seems simplistic. It goes deep, and he's coming from the Torah. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, that's so true. Well, guys, this has been uh, a continuation of Revelation chapter 1, and we'll see where it takes us from here. But thanks for tuning in. Bless you guys. God bless you all. And Mike, thank you. Thank you.